Do you know how good we have it? I mean, to be or have the opportunity to be a Christian today? In light of history, do you know how amazing a privilege it is to be a New Testament believer? To understand your present, it's good to know your past. And today we are looking at a portion of scripture that compares what was for the hearers a new way of relating to God in comparison with what people had known for generations and generations in the past. And what was new for them in the moment may be all too familiar for us today, but revisiting how radical and comprehensively good this transition was for them. Well, if you are a follower of Christ, to understand this history is to be driven to appreciate our privilege so much more in the now. Join with me as we journey today through Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. For this Melchizedek, a king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Well, here we get to pick up with the man named Melchizedek. If you have been tracking with us in this series, you'll know that the writer has mentioned this person in chapter, uh, chapter 5 as he quotes Psalm 110, but then he paused to insert a correction, a warning, and encouragement regarding their moving forward in their faith to maturity in Christ. Every Christian should have as their desire to develop further in their faith and multiply what God has put into them into others. You'll even listen differently to what I am saying today if you have in your mind that what you hear you need to be able to pass on to others. And this is so important. The writer hijacked his train of thought to urge them along that to be in line with that. And ha having completed that correction, warning, and exhortation, he now continues with what he had just started to introduce, Mr. Melchizedek. And what this mysterious person of the Old Testament represents to us today, a whole new way to God. Melchizedek is found in one of the stories of the Bible's first book, Genesis, connected to the father of their faith, Abraham, whom the writer has just used in chapter 6 as the shining example of what it looks like to follow God with faith. As we'll see, this is brilliant writing. The Christians he is addressing would have been familiar with the Old Testament story. It's found in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham's nephew, Lot, has been taken captive by an alliance of four kings. When the news is brought to Abraham, he pursues the captors with a small band of his trained and armed men who are successful in liberating Lot and the people and possessions that had been taken with him. When they return, they are greeted by a couple of kings, one of which is Melchizedek. After his return, that is Abraham, from the defeat of Chedorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And, be, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's Melchizedek's shining moment in the Genesis story. And then he gets one more mention hundreds of years later in a song of David, Psalm 110. And then he gets a veiled mention one more time outside of scripture in a Nat King Cole song, Unforgettable, that's what you are. Okay, so maybe Nat King Cole wasn't thinking about Melchizedek when he wrote that song. But Psalm 110, in which Melchizedek is front and center, was unforgettable to the disciples of Jesus. It is the most referenced psalm in all of the New Testament. That should tell us something about the importance of what Melchizedek represented, the meteor teaching that the Hebrews weren't necessarily ready for, but which the writer will roll out to us quickly here. It's not a soundbite for a quick pick-me-up, but a detailed teaching that reveals more of our great salvation. Are you ready for this? 
Again, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. There are three ways that people today interpret the person of Melchizedek. First, he was an historical figure, that is, he was a ruler of a Canaanite city. Uh, second, he was just a type of Jesus. Or third, he was an actual appearance of Christ. Theologians call this a Christophany. Old Testament scholar Dr. Peter Gentry says that we have a lot of, uh, a lot of reason to believe Melchizedek was a real person. He was called a worshiper of the, most, of the God Most High. And in the city of Ugarit, archaeology has confirmed from the tablets discovered that there was a progression from around 2000 BC, about Abraham's time, to 1200 BC that went from worship of one creator God, as Melchizedek is depicted, to the worship of many gods, of which the fertility god Baal was the chief. Melchizedek is given a name and place. In Hebrew, his name is the fusion of Malak, meaning king, and Sadiq, meaning righteousness. And we are told he is the king of a city, Salem. Think Shalom, which of course means peace, righteousness, and peace. And Melchizedek matters so much because of what he resembles, Jesus. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere in Scripture. For many, of con- for many people who are of any consequence in the Old Testament, there's this, they usually have a genealogy to tell us what family they're from. They didn't have the internet to, to search an ancestry site back then to figure it out. They wrote it down. And as the story develops, this was especially important for priests. You had to prove you were part of the tribe of Levi. But we don't know where Melchizedek comes from. And what we do know is not allowed under the developed Jewish way. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He, in Genesis, brought bread and wine to Abraham. Hmm. Anyone else you know who had something to do with the bread and wine? The one who is also presented to us as king and priest in Hebrews? Part of the controversy of who Melchizedek is comes from the phrase that he continues a priest forever. Does that mean Melchizedek was eternal or that his priesthood had never, had never stopped? That is, as we have no record of his birth, we have no record of that which would end his priesthood, his death. What we can be sure of is that he does function as a type of Jesus. As it says in verse 3, there is a resemblance. The author uses him to illustrate how some of the characteristics of Melchizedek pointed long ago to the superiority of Jesus as the way to God now, as opposed to the way the hearers had been more familiar with. You know, it's a big deal when we change and move off of a long-held family tradition. you got to understand a person's identity is typically so wrapped up into that. To break from it takes great courage. And I have the greatest respect for the people who were former Muslims, Hindus, or Sikhs. And because they came to believe the truth in what we are talking about here, they are willing to risk all, including their family ties and cultural identity, in order to embrace Jesus. And Jesus was a continuation of God's revelation to the Jews. But in his way, there's also a discontinuity with their past. And these believers have been courageous so far to embrace the Jesus way. But as they faced the potential of more persecution because of their newfound faith, well, they are tempted to go back, back to the old. But that would be a rejection of Jesus. 
Melchizedek is the means by which the writer shows them. That would be a bad idea. That would be a colossal mistake. And in this history lesson, we are also reminded of what is true for us in Christ and why we should be passionately faithful to persevere in our faith in Jesus too. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. What proceeds now in this chapter is a lengthy contrast between the old way to God, which was facilitated by priests in the family line of Levi, and the way to God through Christ. Remember, Melchizedek represents Jesus. And that great father of faith, Abraham, who, as we saw in chapter 6, stands as the example of all who believe, but in relationship to Melchizedek, he is inferior. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth of his goods. And the writer will go on to say that in being their forefather, it is like the priests of Levi, Abraham's descendants, tithed to Melchizedek too. Then Melchizedek blessed Abraham, not the other way around. Our writer's first point of comparison, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And that's what the purpose of this section with Melchizedek is all about, to show that Jesus, as foreshadowed by Melchizedek, is so much better. Why would you look anywhere else for what you need? than Jesus? And that's a good question for us too. As you try to manage your life, do you really know who Jesus is and the privilege he has made for you? Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The law given to Moses outlined the way to have a relationship with God. Part of that, as prescribed by God, was the Levitical priesthood and a high priest from the Levite family of Aaron. But lying in the weeds has been this other priesthood of Melchizedek, with no indication that it's expired, like a seed lying dormant brought to our attention in Psalm 110, coming alive and fulfilled in Jesus, who is not from the normal tribe of priests, the Levites, but from the tribe of kings, Judah. Psalm 110 speaks about one who is a king and one who is a priest. Quoting Psalm 110, Hebrews tells us this king-priest refers to none other than Jesus, focusing on his priestly role. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This is a superior priesthood with a superior way to God. In chapter 7, verses 4 to 24, this is expressed in a number of ways. Levi gave tithes. The line of Melchizedek received tithes. In Abraham, Levi received a blessing. Melchizedek gave blessing. The old way could not make anything perfect. The new way does. The Levitical priesthood was dependent on a legal ancestry. Jesus was made a priest through an indestructible life. Death could not hold him. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, declared to be a priest forever. Levites were installed into priesthood on the basis of family line. Jesus was installed on the basis of an oath from God himself. 
Levites had many priests because they die. Jesus is the one priest who never dies. This matters to us now because when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he is this priest for you. His role as a priest is present, and you can know that he will help you in the now in your faith to bring it to completion. You can know he is representing you before God now and always. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As it says in chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In chapter 7, this is the first time in Hebrews the word covenant is mentioned, and it will become an important subject going forward. A covenant in biblical terms is a binding agreement. It is different than a contract, which is usually about goods and services. A covenant is about relationship, outlining the responsibilities of each party for the purpose of that relationship flourishing. It was about commitment, and so it also stated the negative consequences of not fulfilling your side of responsibilities. And how do we know God desires a relationship with us? Because in Scripture, God is the initiator of covenant with people. He is the initiator despite being so much greater and, and other than we are, yet through covenant, he moves towards humanity, towards us, in order to make a relationship possible. He did it with Noah, he did it with Abraham, with David, and what is in discussion with us here, with Moses outlining a Levitical priesthood in order for the whole nation to be in relationship with God. The Old Testament covenant had laws to instruct how to live and laws how to approach God. And there was animal sacrifices and feasts and days of celebration and consecration. As a Jew, you could have a feeling of great nostalgia about this, but it didn't work. Not that the law wasn't good, the fault was with the people, and something better was needed. In 1988, I bought my first cell phone. Do you, do you know how much that cost me? Around $2,500. But hey, I needed it for business, and I was regularly on the road. And it was in the shape of a brick, and I bought the one you installed in your car because it had better reception. It had a better signal. And this phone was very special because the phone, not the network, the phone had the capability to record up to three messages. I know, impressive. And you paid extra for that. And doing a comparison with what is avail available to me now in my smartphone, virtually a mini computer, access to the internet, a stylus for drawing, a camera, the phone I have today is so much better. I'd be crazy to go back to the old. A phone is important for business. A covenant is important for a relationship with God. I'm amazed how people think that we can just re relate to God any way we want to. Is that how any meaningful relationship works? No understanding of roles, no expectations of fidelity or commitment. That doesn't work in our most important human relationships. Why should we think that could work with God? And can you imagine if God related to us any way he wanted to from one day to the next, depending on his mood swings? See, in paganism, that is not an uncommon view of the gods, but the God of the Bible is different so that we can be absolutely sure of what to expect from him and what he wants from us. He enters into covenant with us, binding himself to its terms, the greater to the lesser. How amazing. And in God's plan, as the days of Melchizedek illustrate, he had purposed long ago that in Jesus we would live in a covenant that is so much better. And as a guarantor, Jesus has staked his life on it. Chapter 8, verse 6. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The first or old covenant was defective, not so much because there was a, something inherently wrong with the covenant, but something was wrong with the people. They continually failed to keep it. And if you've read the Old Testament, you see this repeated pattern in God's, God's word of how the people rebelled and broke covenant with God. They were committing spiritual adultery even in the moments when the covenant was being handed down to their leader, Moses. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, or I turned my back on them, declares the Lord. Do you think we can live up to what God wants from us? Maybe what you think of as Christianity isn't much different than keeping a set of rules, as in the Old Covenant. You're not offering animal sacrifices, but you think of your acceptability before God as based on your ability to keep what God commands. And the intent may be admirable, but I'm guessing that hasn't worked out too well for you. We are all too flawed to make the old covenant way work. And God knows that. He has had to live in relationship with the people that continually fail. So what does God do? Well, he doesn't give up on us. He makes it significantly possible for us to live rightly in relationship with him through the covenant he makes, which he calls new. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. And while the old covenant had been very much a covenant of the physical, physical temple, physical sacrifices, physical identification through circumcision with physical promises like good crops and a promised land, the new covenant would be about what God does in the unseen of the heavenlies and the interior life of the people. At the beginning of this chapter, we are told in the New Covenant, Jesus carries out his role in the presence of God in the unseen sanctuary in heaven. And here, the law, rather than being an exterior command, by God's grace becomes written on our hearts. That is, it transforms us, giving us a bent, a desire to do what pleases God, giving us an understanding of who God is and a greater desire to live faithfully to him. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a declaration of fidelity. We will act in a way that is consistent with allegiance to God. What the writer is speaking about here is the work of the Spirit of God as promised by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets. In the Old Testament, it was very selective as to who the Spirit came upon, moved through, special people, special occasions. But now, under the new covenant, the Spirit of God is poured out upon everybody that believes, all flesh as the Old Testament prophet Joel declares. It is not that we don't need teachers under the new covenant. We see elsewhere that teachers are one of God's gifts to the church, but because of the Spirit, all believers can have experiential knowledge of God. And that didn't happen before. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, we, told, or we are told, that we are the children of God, Romans 8. 
There's a revelation and guidance by the Spirit. All can know him in a personal closeness. As we look back at what was under the old and what we have under the new, how great is our God and the new and living way he has brought through Jesus, the mediator and great high priest of the new covenant. It's cause for wonder. It's cause for celebration. It's cause for gratitude. In the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel chapter 10, there's a story of Saul being anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and it says that God gave him a changed heart. This is for all of us today. I grew up in a Christian home, but it wasn't until my early 20s that I really began to live more fully in the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. Understanding the Spirit as God's gift of himself to help us know him and live differently. Welcoming, making room for the Spirit in my life, asking God to fill me with his Spirit. It changed me. And I began to know God in ways that were so personal that I had not experienced before. From what I read here, God wants to do that in all of us. And he's obligated himself to do that under the new covenant and the promises he has made. The author gives no explicit instructions how to make this happen. But if we survey what we have learned so far as our responsibilities, we are to guard against a hardened heart. We are to recognize the supremacy of Jesus and his superior role. And with our eyes on him, keep believing and encouraging one another to do the same. And keep approaching him to ask for help, wanting to obey, but understanding that we are doomed to fail unless, unless God keeps his promise. And it seems to me this is the kind of posture to which the Spirit responds and moves, in which we encounter God's enabling presence to know him. When we position ourselves like this, he will. So ask him. One more thing. Apparently Steve Jobs of Apple, when introducing a new product, would make a presentation about it, showing off its features, and people would be all excited about what they heard. And it would seem like the presentation was over, and then Jobs would say, one more thing. And then he dropped this one more incredible feature that blew people away. If they were excited before, well, they were ballistic after. So one more thing about this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jaw-dropping amazing. More on that to come.